This is a Squeeze podcast. We're your shortcut to being informed. This week, our podcast is brought to you by BHP. Reducing greenhouse gas emissions in the production of copper is critical. That's why BHP has committed to solar, wind and battery agreements to help power their copper mine at Olympic Dam in South Australia. It's happening now at BHP. Visit bhp.com slash critical to find out more. It was on the 12th of October, 20 years ago, that 202 people, including 88 Australians, were killed in a terror attack in Bali. This week, a memorial service is being held at Parliament House in Canberra and a commemorative ceremony at the Australian Consulate General in Bali, Indonesia. So, this week, we've done our squish shortcut on what happened on that night in downtown Kuta. We talked through who was responsible and how it altered our relationship with Indonesia. Squish Shortcuts is the backstory to the big news stories. I'm Kate Watson. And I'm Claire Kimball. Two decades, Claire, have passed since the bombings in downtown Kuta on the island of Bali in Indonesia. That amount of time means that a whole generation has grown up in Australia and may not really know what a massive event it was at the time. Take us back. So it was Saturday, October 12 in 2002 and at about 11pm in Bali, which was 1am on the east coast of Australia, a suicide bomber walked into Paddy's Bar. It was a really popular hangout on the tourist strip of Kuta uh, and detonated a massive bomb. Uh, As survivors panicked and fled the bar across the road outside the Sari Club, terrorists detonated another bomb, this time in a van packed with explosives. This was at a time when terror attacks uh, were something very, very much front of mind, just a year on from September 11, and we'll get to that in a bit, Claire. One of the first people on the scene was an off-duty AFP officer. What they said were, and this is the quote, there were bodies, there was fire, there was chaos. Yeah, that's right. It was complete and utter pandemonium. Uh, We know that the death toll was 202 people. That doesn't account for the hundreds of injuries, dozens and dozens of critically wounded people. Uh, Remember, a nightclub was effectively flattened by the blast Mm. uh, and it was absolutely packed with tourists. Back in 2002, people had mobile phones, but social media still wasn't really a thing, especially not how it is now, where the story would kind of be broadcast live and would be watching the event in real time. That just wasn't the case 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. So the Federal Police Head of Counterterrorism at the time was Andrew Colvin. Uh, He got a call in the early hours of what was Sunday morning back in Australia, uh, and he was told that there had been a big explosion in Bali. But at that stage, uh, even he went back to bed uh, because at that time they thought it might be a gas cylinder. Yeah, he just had no idea of the scale of what had happened. No, and within just a couple of hours, though, it became very clear that it wasn't an accident. Uh, The then Prime Minister, John Howard, was informed and the AFP began assembling a specialist forensic and investigative team. Uh, DFAT, the Department of Foreign Affairs, uh, had its crisis line in full swing and there were floods of calls coming in uh, with people very worried about their friends and their relatives in Bali. Of course, many of us have been to Bali and it's still a place where Australians travel in droves. At Indonesia's request, Australia took the lead role in evacuating the seriously injured. Bali's hospitals just couldn't cope, Claire. 
Yeah, that's right. 66 people uh, of all nationalities were airlifted back to Darwin. Uh, It was a huge military and medical operation. Many had terrible burns and amputations, uh, and they were then medevaced to hospitals around Australia to be able to deal with those injuries. One of the stories that's been retold a little bit this week, I've certainly heard it a couple of times, Claire, is that all of this transformed the way we deal with burns victims here in Australia. Yeah, so Dr Fiona Wood from the Royal Perth Hospital became a bit of a household name and she went on to become Australian of the Year. She was a pioneer of spray-on skin. It was Mm. a new treatment at the time and her team helped save 28 people uh, of those who had really the most shocking burn injuries. Naturally, all of this, as I sort of alluded to, really affected Australians as so many of us have travelled to Bali. So the thought that it could have been me sort of reverberated around the country. Of note, were local footy clubs on end of year trips, Claire? Yeah, so a couple to note, the Kingsley Cats football club from Perth, they lost seven young men and the Coogee Dolphins from Sydney, six of their players died. That's 13 of 88 Australians killed. As I mentioned earlier, it was just a year on from the September 11 attack in the US, so it really had Australia thinking that terrorism had arrived on our doorstep. Let's take a look now at who was responsible. Claire, initially there was a lot of focus on Al-Qaeda, and that's because an attack like this needed a certain level of sophistication and organisation. Yeah, that's right. And the US government was pretty quick to start pointing the finger at them. uh, And they weren't entirely wrong. Mm. Uh, Just two days after the attack, Prime Minister Howard told Parliament that Jamaa Islamiyah, or JI, was in the frame. Mm. Uh, It was an anti-Western fundamentalist Islamic terror group. uh, And it was really inspired by the ideology of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, they were known as the Al-Qaeda of Southeast Asia. Yeah, and while the Bali bombings had been their first major attack on the West, uh, there'd been a big problem in Singapore, Malaysia and the Philippines uh, in the couple of years leading up to that attack in Bali. Uh, Those countries had accused JI's so-called spiritual leader Abu Bakr Bashir and the operations chief Hambali of terrorist acts on their territory. All of these names are ringing bells. I haven't thought about this in a long time. But of course, this week, 20 years on, this is who was responsible for these attacks. J.I. actually killed the Philippines ambassador to Indonesia and Singaporean authorities had foiled another bombing plot, Claire. Yeah, and they'd killed Indonesians too. Uh, They carried out a terrible attack on the Jakarta Stock Exchange Mm. uh, and a series of attacks on Christian churches on Christmas Eve in 2000 that claimed 18 lives. But what it seems, Claire, is that it was the Bali bombings that were the catalyst for the Indonesian authorities to sort of do something about J.I., Yeah, and from the get-go, the Indonesians allowed Australia to be a partner in that whole thing, uh, from the forensic investigation to the huge counter-terrorism operation. Uh, Most of the main suspects were captured or killed in raids in the months after the bombing. And what about the ringleaders and others? Yeah, so like we said, uh, some were actually killed in the raids hiding out in remote areas of Indonesia. Three of the bombers were executed after facing trial. Uh, They were involved in buying the van and the chemicals used in that explosion. Uh, And one was the commander on the ground on that night. 
of note is that none of them ever showed any remorse. Hembali Clare that you mentioned earlier is known as the mastermind of the attack. What about him? Yeah, and he was also the link between Al-Qaeda and Jamar Islamia. Uh, he's still in Guantanamo Bay being held by the Americans. He's never faced trial, but he was called by the US President George W. Bush one of the most lethal terrorists in the world. And when you look at this across the last 20 years, the painful thing for victims of this attack and their families, Claire, is that some of the other key figures had their sentences reduced. Yeah, so Abu Bakr Bashir was the leader of Jamar Islamia at the time. Uh, he was Indonesia's most high-profile radical Muslim cleric, uh, and the attacks would have required his approval. He only spent a year in prison uh, for some minor conspiracy charges back in 2005 uh, and then spent more time in jail for other terrorist incidents. Uh, he's now 83 years old and he's a free man. And another one that people might have heard on the news more recently is convicted bomb maker Umar Patek. He's about to be let out on parole. Yeah, and that decision caused a lot of distress just a couple of months ago. Uh, he's only served half of his 20-year sentence and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese says that he'll keep making representations on behalf of the families for him to remain in custody. And all of this just demonstrates how even 20 years on, our relationship with Indonesia is a tricky one. Let's talk a bit more about that now. Before we get into what might be in the news next week, a message from our podcast advertiser, BHP. This week, they're keen to share with Squizzers how the resources they mine are key to the energy transition to renewable energy. Yeah, we often hear about the push towards renewable energy, but what doesn't get as much attention is the role resources play in making that transition possible. Take steel, for instance. It's a key material used in the construction of renewable energy infrastructure, as well as in bridges, transportation, hospitals and schools. And a big part of it comes from iron ore. BHP says the importance of responsibly produced Australian iron ore is clear. And by that, they mean reducing the greenhouse gas emissions associated with iron ore production. It's why BHP has committed to a solar and battery agreement to help power their port facilities at Port Hedland. It's happening now at BHP. And if you want to learn more, visit bhp.com forward slash critical. You'll find that link in your episode notes. Claire, when you look at the Smart Traveller website, Australia's advice is to exercise a high degree of caution in Indonesia, but there's nothing specific about any terror threat. No, and it's worth calling out that the Australian government actually lists uh, the possibility of terrorist attacks in the UK, but not Indonesia. And analysts say that credit does have to go uh, to Indonesia for its response to Bali. Detachment 88 is the Indonesian counterterrorism squad. It formed in the wake of the attacks, and that unit really did grind down those terrorist cells that were linked to JI. And Detachment 88 hasn't just been part of arrests that were directly linked to the Bali bombings. This counter-terror operation went on for years. Yeah, that's right. And by 2008, six years after that attack, uh, police had arrested 418 suspects and around 250 had been tried and convicted. And Indonesian police claimed that they have all but dismantled J.I., 418 suspects, Claire. It's a lot of people. We've mm. talked about that there's some tension between our countries because of the early release of some of those, though. 
Yeah, and that's just one thing. There is also a lot going on in the relationship. Uh, The past 25 years have been pretty hectic, to say the least. Mm. When Australia led the armed peacekeeping mission in 1999 to help East Timor achieve independence from Indonesia, uh, things really did hit the rocks. Indonesia was not happy about that. Uh, The Bali bombing sort of brought us back together, and so did the huge joint response to the Boxing Day tsunami in 2000. 2004. Indonesia, of course, in Aceh was very heavily affected by that. Mm. Uh, but the issue of asylum boats arriving from Indonesia uh, and Australia's policy of turnbacks has really been a thorny one for more than a decade. Yeah, the vibe you always seem to get when observing how this relationship is managed and then reported on is a sense of perhaps mutual suspicion, a bit of distrust in the relationship. Yeah, it's probably a fair call. Um, The Lowy Institute has surveyed residents of both countries. Trust in each other sits at about 50%. Mm. Uh, The latest irritation on Indonesia's side is the AUKUS security pact that we have with the US and the UK. Uh, Indonesia is very openly questioning why Australia needs to be in the nuclear submarine business uh, and it feels pretty blindsided by it all. AUKUS. We talked about that a lot for a long time and we haven't talked about it much since. I think those subs will be finished in how many years? 20? We'll be talking about it for a while to come. We will. Um, The thing is, though, about Indonesia is that they're right next door. So it's an important strategic relationship. Anthony Albanese, our Prime Minister, obviously thinks so. He did make Indonesia his first bilateral visit after becoming Prime Minister. There were some... uh, Pretty interesting pictures of him riding a bamboo (laughs) bike alongside President Joko Widodo, Claire. Yeah, they were having a lot of fun. It was nice to see two blokes in business suits on bikes. Yeah, (laughs) going very slowly. And when you go very slowly, it's hard to go straight. Exactly. There were a few wobbles there. (laughs) But look, Anthony Albanese is obviously trying to let Indonesia know just how important the relationship is. Uh, And that was reciprocated by Joko Widodo, their president, uh, in the gifting of of that bike. Oh, so he got it as a present. I didn't realise that. He's got it as Imagine a trying present. to get that back to Australia. There you go. Be nice to ride around Canberra. That's a gesture he hadn't made before to a foreign leader. So lots of people hoping it's a sign of good things to come. That's your shortcut to the Bali bombings. On to our recommendations. Each week we give you a recommendation for some further reading, listening or watching. Uh, I've got a link I referenced earlier that there's been a bit of coverage about that medical response uh, to Bali some 20 years ago and that life-saving burns treatment that um, was used. I've got a link to a bit more about that. Yeah, it's a really incredible story, that one. Uh, For me, a podcast to listen to for a real insider's account about how the Australian Federal Police kicked into action uh, to deal with the Bali bombing. It's a podcast that they've produced. It's called Operation Alliance uh, and it's hosted by the one and only Ray Martin. Yeah, that looks worth checking out. I'll put that on my list for sure. Thanks for listening into this episode of Squeeze Shortcuts. We've had a few requests across the week, but keep them coming. Uh, All big international stories, Claire, so we're lining up a couple of good ones across the coming weeks. Stand by for that. Until next week. Kate Watson, co-host of News Club and The Weekly Wrap, jumping in here to say thank you for listening to our podcasts first and foremost. And if you like them, we'd really appreciate it if you could share them. Tell your mates about us. Tell your family. 
tell your barista, tell your hairdresser, whoever you think might be interested in the news that we cover. You telling people about us is still the number one way we grow. Thanks in advance.